Hey everybody, it's Jim Riley. Welcome to Musicians on the Record. Now, without further ado, hit it. Hi, welcome to Musicians on the Record. I'm David Ward. You've heard the music, now hear their story. And you've definitely heard this guy's music today. I'm so excited. The drummer and band leader for the band, multi-platinum band, Rascal Flats, Jim Riley is on the show today. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you here. Really, uh, really uh, grateful that you agreed to do the interview. Really appreciate it. Let me run through a little bit of the credits, uh, and these are just to name a few. You've played on the Grammy Awards, the Tonight Show, American Music Awards. You've been voted the best country drummer uh, by Modern Drummer Magazine. And we are in the Drum Dojo, which I will show folks uh, from the little tour. There you go. Excellent. Love the <laughs> side. Yeah. And you are a, a drummer, not only professionally, but an uh, amazing educator. You're an author of two books, Song Charting Made Easy, about the Nashville number system. And your latest one, which I have and been working with, The Survival Guide for the Modern Drummer. Jim, this is a great book, and um, I'm just learning a ton from it. Thank you for putting it out. What inspired you? Let's start with that. What inspired you to write this book? Well, I had just finished Survival Guide. Uh, no, I just finished Song Charting Made Easy. And uh, that, that is a book on the Nashville number system. And it's a really fantastic system. Uh, the book is really well written. Uh, it's been very well received. But it's, it's on a subject that if you don't get to explain to people what it is, they may not even know how much it could really help them. Mm. Um, so... I, I, I said, well, the first thing is I've written this book. It's essentially on music theory. Yes. So what I wanted to try to do was write my first drum book. Mm. So the truth is I started with the idea that maybe what I would do is write a book on country drumming. You, you know, I'm a guy from Massachusetts, but I'm a guy that's lived in Nashville for 20 years. So I thought, well, I, I'm probably a pretty good authority on that. And at that point, I decided to stop in my tracks and say, wait a minute, you've never been just a country drummer or just an anything kind of drummer. I've made my entire living being able to play every style of music from pop to rock to metal to country to reggae to blues yeah. uh, to, to hip hop. I mean, and, and so what I wanted to do was I, w I wanted to try to create a resource that was a little bit more reflective of my uh, my experience as a drummer. Mm. So what I decided to do was I looked at what there was and, and, I, and I saw some great resources out there. And I said, well, the thing that I need to really do is I need to make the examples as real world as possible. And I need to make sure that the play-alongs are of a phenomenal quality. Because what happens is you'll either have someone that, that has a small amount and they're very good quality, or you have a large amount yeah. and the quality diminishes because who's crazy enough to spend two full years on recording music? Well, apparently only me. Um, so I spent 40 I used uh, I used 40 musicians mm. over the period of two years, 
so that I was able to use um, country players on the country stuff, metal players on the metal stuff, blues players on the blues stuff, actual working musicians in a Latin band for the Latin music, great jazz players for the jazz, and so on, so that everything had a very, um, like, like you really felt like you were immersed in that style. And that way for people who are like, they're maybe like, you know, I've played rock and I've played country, but I've never played any jazz. They've got a situation where they can walk in and I can show them the basics of what to play. And once they get in there, they're in such a inspiring musical situation that it makes it a lot easier to learn. And I I think that that's been the thing that people that has really resonated with, with people is the is the quality of the, the play alongs. I took so much care spending just, you know, two years on just the music, yeah. which uh, was a lot of time. The, the whole book took five years, wow. but uh, I'm really, I'm really glad that it's, it's done. Uh, and uh, now I get to use it as an educator instead of, uh, you know, having to spend every day as I was in this room. I spent, you know, every day for a couple of years working on it. Wow. And I'm imagining, I mean, this must be incredible with the dumb, uh, the drum dojo and teaching your students, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing how much this book is finding itself as a resource in uh, multiple places. Yeah. Uh, but, but certainly here at my studio, it, it really works great before I had this book, I would go, okay, I'm going to use some examples from here. I'm going to use some examples from here. I'm going to pick out of this book and choose out of this book. And essentially what I was able to do is kind of pull a lot of that stuff into one area. I would never say, you know, this is the one and only book that I'm ever going to use because there are some other resources that I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. But um, as far as drum set, I start kids in the sixth grade and we're – we're playing the jazz stuff. We're playing the pop stuff. We're playing some of the world stuff. Um, you know, I, I can use it from that level all the way up through, uh, you know, the kids that study with me that are college or yeah. even like with the um, the drum camps that I've been doing that are with, with adults. So can we talk a little bit about your story? You mentioned you were for, you know, from Massachusetts. Let's talk a little bit about how a kid from Massachusetts got to where you are today. When was yeah. it that you first fell in love with music and drums? Yeah, um, so I think I was in love with music before I even understood that I was in love with music. I mean, it was just something that was always a part of who I was from my earliest memories. Um, I was writing music. I wanted to play music. I'd get together with my friends and I would get mad because they weren't taking our band seriously and we were six years old. Um, I asked my parents if I could start playing drums when I was in the fourth grade. Okay. They did not let me start because I was, you know, not doing well in school and not getting along well in school. And so they said, well, we don't want to add another thing in there. So fifth grade, I asked them again. They said, no. Finally, they figured out by sixth grade, A, I wasn't going to stop asking. And B, um, 
whatever was wrong with me wasn't going to be fixed by not having me play drums. So okay. they said, well, let's throw the drums in there and right. see what happens. Right. Let him and hit things. Is that it, uh, it really helped coalesce my whole personality around the music. Hmm. Um, my main inspiration uh, was probably... Um, like to my initial inspiration to play drums was was probably Peter Chris. Yeah, um, I saw I saw a uh, commercial for Kiss Alive yeah. or Kiss Alive Two yeah. when I was a kid, and just seeing that drum set, yeah. uh, you know, just on that riser that was kind of rising up and the drums going around them, and with the big I was cats. like, oh man, that is yeah, that is the job that I that I want for sure. Right. And so uh, that was that was my inspiration, I would say, to start. Mm. And then, uh, you know, I've had many inspirations uh, after that, but that was probably the beginning. And I've yet to meet him. I, I, I'd certainly like to do that. Certainly your goal. Yeah, he, he was certainly one of my earlier influences as well. And I love the big drum riser with the cats, the huge cats on it and the makeup. It was great. So, so yeah. <laughs> And so... Where did that then go to musically for you? Did you just start playing? Um, were you mostly self-taught? Were there some important teachers that came along? No, I, I started playing. I started playing in in, in band. Um, I, I was taking drum lessons. I went through a couple of drum teachers initially. Um, I, I think, in retrospect, I think my first two teachers were a little intimidated by my uh, fervor to learn drums and how quickly I was learning things. Um, so I got pushed along. I finally ended up um, in high school. I was taking lessons with Arthur Press, who was playing with the Boston Symphony. Wow. And then I, I was taking some lessons with Alan Dawson. Okay. Um, sure. And I wish I certainly wish I'd taken more with him. Mm. Uh, but uh, I, I was playing in rock bands. I was playing in two different rock bands. I was playing in the jazz band at school. I was playing in what little marching band stuff we had and uh, concert band. I was playing in the Greater Boston Youth Symphony, the Massachusetts Youth Wind Ensemble. So I was doing a lot of classical music as well. Mm. And um, my band director in high school was a UNT alum. And he uh, he kind of hit me to UNT, and so I ended up going to UNT uh, to get my uh, music ed degree. I started there in uh, fall of '87. Okay, I mean, this was more than just a hobby for you. Obviously, this was a real passion. What was your your sort of first dream of what you wanted to do with drumming, Jim? So I just renovated in this room uh, not too long ago, and I had a uh, an article from when I was in high school on the wall. And uh, it was interviewing a young man that was really just determined to make it as a musician, even, you know, as a 14-year-old kid. I, I think the thing that I was wrestling with then that I still wrestled with for probably another six years is whether I was going to be a classical musician or whether I was going to be a drum set musician. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think what finally happened with me in college, uh, I was studying with uh, the timpanist for the Boston, not for the Boston Symphony, for the Dallas Symphony mm -hmm. when I was going to UNT. 
And, um, and I was also studying with Ed Soap at North Texas uh, on drum set. And I think something, I think it was just a, listen, if you're going to be a timpanist, you got to go for that mm. wholeheartedly. If you're going to be a drum set player, you got to go for that wholeheartedly. And I think my original vision of the kid behind the drum set, you know, uh, with, with Kiss, yeah. uh, kind of uh, won out. So I decided to, you know, wholeheartedly mm. pursue being a, a drum set player. And no regrets? Happy that you went that way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I still have a real passion for um, classical music. I love to, to uh, go and see the Nashville Symphony. I financially support the Nashville Symphony because I think it's a great uh, organization. And, uh, you know, it's just something I can do on my local level to, to help make a difference. But uh, I actually still dream of uh, getting to, uh, to do some, some sub-dates with them. Uh, Sam Baco has mentioned that I should get on the sub-list there. And, uh, you know, the truth is, just with Rascal Flats, I just don't really have the time to, to commit sure. to, uh, to the symphony. Although, at some point in my life, I'd really love to do that. You know, it sounds like music is kind of in your bones, in your DNA. Was, uh, was anybody else in the family musical? My parents are both music lovers, okay. uh, different eras. My, my mother really enjoyed uh, Frank Sinatra yeah. and show tunes. Uh -huh. And my dad enjoyed the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, but he also loved Stevie Wonder mm -hmm. and uh, Van Morrison yeah. and uh, Ray Charles. Yeah. And so I got kind of a, a wide, eclectic thing yeah. there. Once I started playing, my dad really tried to really uh, deliberately throw some, you know, music at me from Buddy Rich to Gene Krupa to Cozy Cole. I mean, he would just try to find things. Uh, just being a studious dad and being a lover of music, you know, mm -hmm. he would find music that he felt like would inspire me. Absolutely. And what part of Massachusetts, Jim, can I ask? Well, I grew up in Natick, Massachusetts. Anyone who's been to Massachusetts uh, knows that that's where the mall was. It was like, it was one of the first, like, you know, malls. It was like a big deal. Oh, it's Natick? Yeah, you know where the mall is. Right. The mall. That's right. Um, but uh, just outside of Boston, sure. Uh, grew up in the suburbs, yeah. and uh, grew up going into town to 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 like uh, to be was it BU for the um, for the Greater Boston Youth Symphony, and uh, going into the uh, uh, New England Conservatory for. Uh, Massachusetts Youth Wind Ensemble. So I was in town a lot. Yeah, that's great. So uh, I was playing, you know, in the Greater Boston Youth Symphony, which I'm sure you came up upon. And um, I was actually playing in a percussion ensemble for uh, Tom Geiger. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> played in the Boston Symphony. Wow. And was teaching at BU. Amazing. Uh, I got to play some of his pieces with him. It was wow. pretty neat. Sounds fantastic. So when you when you decide to go to UNT, mm -hmm. um, the folks and you want to say I, I want to study music, uh, study drums. The folks said what? Oh, I mean they were all for it. I mean there was no um, 
there was really no question what I was going to do with my life. And my parents never questioned that. They, they just saw that I had this passion for music. Yeah. And it was never, there was never an option of trying to talk Jim out of that to do something else. I mean, yeah. this was definitely what I was, I, it was the reason I was going to college. I right. mean, I wasn't going to college to be an academic. I was going to college to study music. Right. So they were very supportive. Yeah. And highlights and any challenges or lessons from your time studying at college? Yeah. I mean, first thing for some of the young people, I mean, it was my first time away from home. Mm. Uh, it was my first, um, it was the first time anyone had really, really asked me to study. Yeah. And I was horrible at it until I figured out how to do it. And the, the, th the third of the trifecta was I had my first girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was just, you know, my first semester was a disaster. Sure. A lot of distractions. Uh, so had to figure out how to uh, pull it together. Yeah. And so, because I realized, listen, you know, this is an unsustainable model here. So I had to learn how to study. I had to get committed to it. Mm. And um, so that's what I did. I, I learned how to study because I knew that if I could keep my grades up, I could keep studying music and getting better and being exposed to all the great musicians and music that I was being exposed to there. I didn't want that mm. party to end, yes. the, you know, with this, where I was learning so much on a musical sense that I had to learn how to do all the other stuff on the fly. Yeah. And, and what kind of system helped you sort of get that together, Jim, that you could, you know, learn and study more? I mean, you know, it, it, it was nothing, it was nothing special or specific. Okay. It was, for the first time in my life, I had to be committed to being uh, to being a student, right. to being a real, honest to goodness college student. Because in high school, I was not really challenged to to study. I think a lot of times they're just kind of pushing you along, pushing you along. Right. Right. And uh, college, they don't they don't care. I mean, if, if you don't make it, they right. they're fine with that. Right. Yeah. You know. So. Uh, they they don't have the same kind of oh dropout standards that you know that they they're worried about in high school so right, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah so I, I just I just had to really learn how to do it and and that's what I did yeah and uh, obviously UNT University of North Texas right yeah University of North Texas for those who don't know uh, as musicians just look it up I mean it's it's a it was actually um, the first university either in the United States or the world, I don't remember, to offer a degree in jazz studies. Oh, wow. Amazing. Um, and it is one of the largest music schools in the country. And it is certainly the largest percussion department wow. in the country. Amazing. It's great. Yeah. So you go from UNT then, and I imagine you're learning the scene, you're gigging, uh, at this time as well? Yeah, well, I mean, so my time at UNT, I was studying with Ed Sof, who's a phenomenal teacher. He actually just retired from UNT, and they're going to be announcing his replacement pretty soon. Uh, I, I got to be around a lot of, you know, phenomenal future great drummers uh, like uh, Keith Carlock. Yeah. 
We were on the drum line together at UNT. Uh, Jason Sutter was my roommate oh. at UNT. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, some interesting people like uh, Eric Johnson, who founded Innovative Percussion. Yeah. Um, so the, the, all the innovative sticks uh, and that line. Uh, Eric and I were in percussion ensemble, and there was tons of people that were in the, the marching thing that have kind of gone on to, to become, you know, really influential in that area. Hmm. Um, so I had a great experience at UNT playing every style imaginable. I was playing in the, the jazz bands, playing in the percussion ensembles, yeah. playing in rock bands on the side. Yeah. And uh, when I graduated from UNT with my degree in music education, I very accidentally uh, happened to get a job teaching music for a um, school district in the Dallas area. I did that for a year and I went, boy, this is great and I'm really good at it and I, I really enjoy it, but I'm not pursuing my dream of being a professional musician. Mm. So I decided to quit that job, uh, much to my mom's dismay because she was so happy to say, my son is a teacher, right. you know, uh, and I just decided I was going to only make moves that were going to get me towards uh, being uh, being a professional musician. When for you, Jim, from there was that first big break that helped you get to where you are now? Well, I I was being a professional musician in Dallas. I had jumped around a little bit. Um, I lived in Kansas City for about two years, and I said, you know what, I've really got to go where I know I need to be, which is Nashville. For me, um, it was funny, a, a very influential meeting for me was the day that I met Larry London, mm. uh, which is also the day that I met Don Famular. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, Larry um, was a phenomenal player, had played, you know, had played with Elvis, had played with uh, Steve Perry, Journeys Raised on Radio, he had played with Adrian Blue, mm. um, he had, and by the way, you know, like uh, about half of the country records that have been made in the last 20 years at that point, he, he was the guy in Nashville, and Meeting him really kind of cemented this idea that I needed to move to Nashville because that's where um, the music that I was hearing, and you have to understand the timing too. Hmm. When in the early '90s, like I love all that early '90s grunge stuff. Yeah. As a listener, yeah. but as a musician, it's really easy to kind of listen and go. There's maybe one great musician in that band, and then there's some good musicians and. I was listening to the music coming out of Nashville, and the musicianship was so high um, that I was like, wow, I mean, i got to go there. I want to be a part of that. So I moved to Nashville in 1997 with really not a great plan. I didn't have any money saved up. I didn't have a really great lead on where I was going to live. Mm. Um, I, get, I got a job at a drum shop 
Um, I somehow got them to let me stay at the drum shop. Um, you know, kind of like uh, Billy Bob Thornton and Sling Blade. You know, right. I mean, it was just sort of they were like locking me in the shop at, right. at, at night. You know, right. Right. and um, and then I was going out and networking and meeting people and playing gigs. Mm. And when the drum shop closed, I was still networking and meeting people and doing gigs. Only I didn't have a, a place to live, so I was living in the back of my truck for a couple weeks. Wow! And um, then. Um, Rich Redman actually called me and said, hey, um, I'm going out of town for like two weeks. Can you watch my cat? Mm. And I was like, give me the keys to your apartment. I'll watch your cat. <laughs> so he gave me the keys to his apartment. I basically moved in, and we lived together for about six months. Yeah. And I, at that time, I, I was working at Pearl mm. um, on the on the loading dock. Wow. Uh, just, you know, unloading boxes. I mean, they could have been, you know, boxes of uh, – of, of furniture, but for me, the fact that they had snare drums and hi hat stands and all that kind of stuff made it a little bit better. Wow. Um, so the first year I was in town, I was just gigging and working at um, at Pearl hmm. and uh, just trying to just trying to meet people and, uh, and, and make some sort of break. And, and the thing that happened for me, it was just real innocuous. I had played a gig with a bass player, six to ten, paid forty bucks hmm. at a, at one of the local gigs, and he called me up one day. He said, "Hey, um, I got a I got a gig for you." And I was thinking, "Well, where and when?" Hmm. He's like, "I don't know. This is a an artist gig. I've got a I've got a, a gig with a guy named Mark Chestnut." And, uh, and I was like, "Oh wow!" And this guy in the in the late nineties was a, was a really big artist. Yeah, and. Um, so uh, I said, well, what do I got to do? You know, I, I was just like, and he says, you don't have to do anything. They're going to come see you play. Um, just let me know when you're going to be playing somewhere you want them to come see you. So they came and saw me play. Um, they hired me, uh, gave me the board tapes. They were tapes uh, and some charts. And um, and they said, we'll see you in uh, two weeks. And uh, my first gig with those guys I was uh, was playing on the very first season of The View up in New York City. So yeah. it was Barbara Walters' first season of that show. Wow. And um, so my, my first gig with, with those guys was on live TV. Amazing. And, kind of, and I did that gig for uh, two years. Wow. That's amazing. You know, this is really powerful, too, I think, Jim, of that deep passion and commitment for you with moving to Nashville gigging, doing what it took, and real challenges that you had. I mean, living in your car, that's not easy, basically kind of being homeless. And then, but persevering, networking is also what I'm really hearing was was really huge, really important. Yeah, I had five gigs. The other two nights I was going out and, and meeting people. I remember walking in, into a club in Nashville, and it was filled with musicians. Hmm. It was really, I mean... It was, to use a word, it was a really happening place at the time, you know. Um, And I I didn't know anybody in there. But I could tell that everybody there knew each other. And I said, you know, in a month, I want to know everybody in this place. And so I did that, you know. Uh, And I met a lot of uh, really uh, interesting musicians that I worked with for uh, several years after that, just even in that one club. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so that was the thing. I was just networking as much as I can. But 
you know, they say um, great reputations take a long time to build. It's the terrible ones that spread like wildfire. So for me, it was it was every conversation I would have, every jam session I got in or every opportunity I got in to, to go up on stage was just another chance to make a positive impression. I just wanted to connect all those positive impressions into yes. a reputation. And I think really important for younger musicians or musicians coming up that want to be where you are, those people skills are really important. Any sort of tips or tools when you talked about networking or just going to meet people, any strategies that you would tell younger musicians to use right. around that? I think a lot of that world has changed. Um, there's probably some more online aspects to it sure. than there were when uh, we were coming up. Yeah. Um, you still have people that feel like they want to like either present or email a package of their body of work okay. uh, to people. And, and, and most people are not specifically looking for that. Yeah. I think... You, you, there's still an importance to the true interpersonal connections that you make Absolutely. with musicians. Yeah. You know, there's still something very important about putting your hand out and pressing the flesh right. and meeting people. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't need a packet. You don't need cards. I mean, we're kind of in an era beyond that. Right. Um, you can just go um, be patient I think you can be a young player and go, I'm a great player. I want to get up and play. And they don't know that. They don't know you. Right. But if you're too pushy, they might think, wow, this young guy is just cocky. He's kind of a jerk. Yeah. So sometimes you just have to be patient. you got to you know, go to a club and meet somebody on the break. And then they say they may get you up. And then you wait till 2 o'clock and they don't get you up. And then you come out the next night. And then they're looking at you going, oh, here's the guy from last night. I didn't get up. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, at 1.55, they get you up and they go, oh, wow, that guy, that guy wasn't so bad. And then the next time you show up, you know, uh, they're, they're more than happy to get you up. Right, right. And it's not as much. I mean, the drummers are a great network. Certainly we have one of the best, like, social networks of, of players. Yes. Um, you know, you definitely want to be meeting the keyboard players and, uh, guitar players, singer-songwriters, right. uh, those are all great people to meet. Yes, and certainly the bassist as well, right? That's an important, the rhythm section, right? Of course. <laughs> yeah. a, an amazing transition. You get the gig in New York on The View, uh, and you're playing there. When did Rascal Flats come about for you? Okay, so I was playing with Mark Chestnut uh, from 98 to 2000. In that time... Uh, I had met Jay DeMarcus, who's one of the three uh, primaries uh, of Rascal Flats. Um, he and I were playing $40 pickup gigs. Uh, he, he's a great piano player. He's a great bass player. I mean, great at both of them. Mm. A really good singer. And so we were gigging together a lot. Um, 99 rolls around. Um, the One of the opening acts on the Mark Chestnut tour is a... A, a female artist named Shelly Wright. Mm. Um, Shelly has uh, a new band leader, Jay DeMarcus. Uh, he hires a new guitar player, Joe Don Rooney. Um, and so there's two of the three future Rascal Flats playing in the opening band on a tour that I'm headlining on. Wow. 
Um, so I'm playing on the weekends and we're hanging out, seeing each other every night. Then a lot of us are playing. Actually, me, Jay, Gary, and Joe Darn were all playing gigs together uh, under a different name uh, at the Fiddle and Steel Guitar Bar in Nashville, which is now a hole in the ground, getting ready to be a boutique hotel, unfortunately. Okay. Um, but, you know, these things happen. They do, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, we were playing $40 gigs um, just in, in, in a club up there. And so when those guys decided to pursue getting a record deal, hmm. they basically said, hey, um, when, when we get a record deal, we'd, we'd love for you to come out and play with us. And I said, well, you know, if that happens, yeah. I'd love to consider it. Sure. And um, – they, uh, it's a much longer story. I'm going to condense it here. Sure. Uh, they got a record deal. Uh, they, they played me the first four songs, um, that they had recorded. And, uh, I thought that they were amazing. Hmm. And, uh, they asked me if I would come out and play drums with them on the road. And, um, I said that I absolutely would. And so I quit my job with Mark Chestnut who had, you know, uh, over a dozen number one hits wow. and um, went to go play with my friends whose record hadn't even come out yet. Yeah. But I believed that they could have a very big part of shaping the future of the Nashville uh, sound. And they, they definitely have been able to do that. Yes. Um, they were one of two kind of branches of country music at that time. And it was, the question was, is it the music going to get back to more traditional or is it going to get more uh, pop? And the truth is, is that it did both. Right. So you had Brad Paisley and people on one side and you had artists like uh, Keith Urban and Rascal Flatts on yes. another side. Right. And it just really grew into an amazingly huge genre. So uh, I felt great about my uh, my decision a year later, they decided to make me uh, their uh, musical director, and I've been there ever since. So can we talk about that? Because you're not only the drummer, but band leader for Rascal Flats. Tell us, mm -hmm. what does that entail, band leader? Uh, yeah, I mean, someone's got to be in charge of that sort of thing. Now, it's it's a lot clearer when you're working for like an individual artist. Yeah. You know, you're working for a single artist, and there's a band and there's someone that has to be uh, in charge uh, from a musical sense, an organizational sense, a communication sense. And that's me. Yeah. Um, now, when you add the fact that two of the artists that I work for are also in the band, yeah. it makes it more complicated because they are still and always my bosses. But yet there are times when I'm not telling them what to do, but I'm saying this is what we're doing, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, and that may be, um, you know, from like, they asked me, okay, to, to put together set lists. So I'm calling them up and telling them what we're doing. Um, uh, I may be telling them, uh, like we did, we did a, a crossroads with, with journey. Mm -hmm. And so I had to kind of, keep their feet to the fire to go, I know that you think you know these songs. We all think we know them. Yeah. But to perform them with Journey, we need to get them on a different level. You bet. You yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so so that, that's where 
it becomes uh, interesting because, of course, you know, I, I love and respect these guys as my as my bosses. But sometimes, you know, I have to um, also just make sure that we're all on the same page. Yes. yes. Um, the main part of my job with Rascal Flats is, you know, hiring musicians, unfortunately, sometimes letting musicians go, um, making sure the band is prepared for whatever's coming up. Um, if we've got new material that we need to learn, uh, I, I need to make sure that they have it. I need to make sure they understand what key we're playing it in. I, I need to make sure it's clear what instrumentation we're going to be using. Uh, we have multiple people that play multiple instruments, so just making sure that we have the instrumentation clear yes. so that everybody knows that what, what we're doing there. Um, you know, uh, working on the, the new record, um, Jay said, um, hey, I need you to write charts for these tunes. So I wrote the uh, charts to the tunes. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a million little things that I do, but basically I love to be as involved as they want me to be. Yeah. And um, they know that I have a passion for their music uh, to be presented in the best light. Yeah. So they, they trust me with that. And, uh, and so I try to make sure that I'm, uh, I'm keeping the band part of it uh, up to their vision. So as far as writing, um, you know, I don't do any writing for the band. Um, you know, Jay, Gary, and Joe Don write, but they also accept songs. I mean, we're in Music City, right. uh, which is the songwriting capital of the world. So, I mean, we literally have the best songwriters in the world living here or working here. Yes. Um, so, um, I, I, I can write, but, um, you know, I, that stuff gets taken care of on a, a on a level that's happening uh, outside of uh, of the area that I'm working in. Yeah. So they may ask me to write the charts, but if, if you know anything about the national number system, it's really just a harmonic analysis of a piece of music, and it's really it's it's fascinating stuff. Um, the national number system, if you don't know it, I mean, it's really based on instead of do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one. So if we're thinking about a, uh, a, a song that goes one, four, six, five, right? Yeah. So that's a common progression. Mm -hmm. So all I'm doing is I'm listening to the demo. I'm writing the harmonic analysis out. Yes, and yes. The, the national number system leaves enough uh, room for great musicians to create. It gives them a detailed enough environment that they know exactly what they need to do, but it leaves out uh, all the small things that a musician can do to make it special. It leaves that up to them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a really fascinating system. So, like, like I said, when we went in, uh, to, to, to do the, the, new, the new record. They asked me to write charts out. I write the charts out and come to the studio and hand the, these charts out. And the Nashville number system is really one of the secrets to why Nashville is, 
you know, like the recording capital of the world right now because we can record, you know, tunes like that. It's shockingly fast how quick we can move when we have these types of charts. Absolutely. And uh, so, you know, we recorded um, three, three songs a day for two days on the days that I worked. So can you talk a little bit about your mindset, your preparation, and the differences between when you're going into the studio to record an, an album, whatever they're calling it these days, or yeah, it, when, when you're playing live in front of whatever, 50,000 people, or on the Grammy Awards, or the CMAs? Yeah. What's your mindset like? Um, well, um, I think it's similar. My... Um, my goal as a musician is very similar, although I may execute it in a different way. Uh, my goal is always to give the music what it needs, to play for the song. Um, so uh, going in to record uh, on an album, and the new, the new album, the new Rascal Flatts album, comes out uh, April 19th. It's called uh, Back to Us, uh, the single is uh what is the single called i played on it i should know uh yours if you want it okay um it's you know it's a top 20 single today uh we'll see where it is when the podcast comes out sure but um it's doing really well so my job uh as i go into the studio is always to give the music what it needs uh and in that case it means to give it solid concise parts Hmm. Um, creating grooves that really support the song, creating fills that um, that properly connect the sections, and to make sure that I'm building the entire structure of the song from intro to you know verses, chorus, bridge, solo, outros, to make sure that all the parts um, are. Um, unique enough for every section and to make sure that the song builds from beginning to end. And, uh, I will say that I think a lot of people have this feeling like they listen to a finished product and they go, I could do that. And they go, I, yes, I, I, I believe you could do that. You can do that, but you won't be able to do that without the correct mindset of being able to, um, go in there and, and giving the song exactly what it wants. I think as drummers, you know, all musicians, we go in there and go, I can't wait to put my stamp on this. I can't wait to just throw down. Yeah. And sometimes the music doesn't need that. That's right. Sometimes That's right. you just got to give the music what it needs. The other thing you need to do is you need to have a great sound. Um, and as a drummer, that's not something that we are as familiar with. Um, we, it's one of the few instruments that you can know how to play very well without knowing how to tune very well. Yeah. So if you don't know how to tune your drums, then, um, then your drums are not really going to sound very good. So understanding how to tune the drums to get a great sound that you and the engineer and the artists are happy with. Uh, and then... You have to be able to play the drums with a sound that 
transcends whatever drums you're playing. Right. Whether, whether you're playing the worst, cheapest drum set with the worst heads right. or you're playing your favorite kit, you have to have a sound that transcends all of that. That, man, I can... It, it just comes through. I remember hearing a story about a guitar player. Maybe it was uh, Les Paul or someone. They walk up to him and they say, um, man, that guitar sounds great. And he takes it and unplugs it and goes to hand it to the guy and says, how's it sound now? You understand? I mean, the sound for him was here. The sound was here. You know, we have to bring our sound as drummers. We have to bring our sound with us. Um, and so... You have to be able to strike the drum in a way that's creating a great sound. You have to have the drums tuned in a way that they sound great. And then you have to be playing for the song in a way that makes the parts um, crucial and memorable to that piece of music. And you, you need to concentrate on making that piece of music better rather than putting your stamp on it. And every once in a while, you can do, do both, right. you know, and I felt like with, uh, with yours, if you want it, I mean, selfishly, when they said that that was going to be the single, I went, well, that's great because as a drummer, yeah. that's the, that's the tune that I would have definitely put out, <laughs> but, uh, they, they were putting it out from, from a song perspective. They felt like that was the, uh, the best one. So this, in this case, I, I felt like I get to put a, a stamp on it because I was playing for the song. Yeah, so you talked a little bit about tuning as well. Um, mm -hmm. How do you get some of those sounds, Jim? Um, well, I'll tell you what's been really neat. Uh, on this record, uh, I was actually able to bring in my drum tech, Craig Krolicki, uh, who's been with me for 10 years. And, um, you know, the way that we have always gotten sounds, uh, it's funny, we did, a, we did a, a, a drum camp in here a couple weekends back, and Craig was talking about, he said, man, you know, Jim's, Jim's ear is so good, you know, and I'm going, oh, God, is he setting me up for a, for a bad beat here? Yeah. And sure enough, I tuned, I tuned uh, a 10-inch tom, and then he took the 10-inch tom, and he said, if you hold it on here and you listen and you tap, it's going to make this pitch, and darn it if it made exactly that pitch wow. uh, on, both, on both heads, so... I got, I got lucky. I was like, oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what Craig has always done is he, um, he listens to the way that I tune the drums, and then he goes back and harmonically analyzes where I have the pitch wow. of, of the drums. Wow. So um, when we went into the studio, he got new heads, put them on the drums, um, you know, stretched them out a little bit, and then uh, he tunes them to uh, the pitches that he knows that I'm comfortable with. And I don't know exactly what those pitches are, and I th I'm sure they would be different on um, you know, different size drums, et cetera. We, what we used was 10, 13, 16. Okay. Um, which is a nice spread. Yes. Um, but uh, so Craig went in there and, and tuned the drums to those pitches. Now, I will tell you one of the things we were using, coded ambassador heads okay. on top, clear ambassadors on the bottoms. Okay. Uh, um, and the, the bottom heads are tuned uh, about a half step uh, above the top head. Okay. And so they're a half step higher on the bottom than they are on the top. Okay. On the rezzo head, they're a little higher, half step higher. Yep, yep they are. 
And that's because when the column of air, when you hit the drum, the first tone that you hear is actually the bottom. Got it. Do you usually tune low, medium, or high your batter heads? Pretty low, pretty low. I think, you know, as drum technology has gotten better, the ability to, to tune low on drums, I think we hear a lot of old jazz recordings and, the, you know, the heads and the drums just weren't ready for the low sounds, so they, they tuned the drums up where they could get them to sound great. Right. These days we can get the drums to sound great low, yeah. so we're able to do that. Um, so, yeah, we did that, and then, you know, Craig tuned my snare drums the way he does live, but we, I ended up taking the snare drum down lower in the studio to get kind of a beefier, throatier sound. Yeah. Uh, live, we were trying to get, like, you know, get it to kind of cut through. And in the studio, you know, we were trying to get it to sit in the mix a little bit better. So, uh, you know, it was, it was a great experience having, uh, having him in there. So basically, I was able to just kind of walk in, uh, you know, retune the snare drums uh, a little bit, and uh, we, were, we were good to go. Uh, on the bass drum, you know, we were just we we use the Power Stroke three head, and then we're um, I've got a, like just a household pillow, a bedroom pil pillow in 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 there. And you guys have some uh, touring plans coming up for this summer on the album as well. Yeah, I mean, this year honestly is a little weird for us mm -hmm. uh, from a touring perspective. We're not doing all of the big. Uh, amphitheater shows that we usually do. Um, there's some venues that people have seen us over over the years where, you know, we've played that venue 10 years in a row. Yeah. You know, we play it, and then nine months later we're playing it. Right. So what they decided to do this year was to take a year off of all of those usual things, uh, and we are doing uh, some different gigs than we've done before. Um, and so it's been a lot of fun, but we're frankly, we're not touring a lot. So, okay. um, if you did want to see Rascal Flats live, just go to rascalflats.com and check the dates there. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, we're, we're probably playing about 50 dates. Uh, most of them are happening this summer. Yeah. And so right now, um, you know, the, the, the guy's schedule has allowed me to, uh, you know, do, do my teaching. Yeah. Uh, I'm doing more drum events um uh, doing uh, the chicago drum show mm -hmm. this year which i've never done nice um, i'm uh, looking at doing an event uh, i'm going to be announcing uh, an event up in canada that i'm going to be doing this summer that normally i just wouldn't have the time to do so i'm just kind of making some time to do some uh different events that's great wonderful so for you then what kind of career highlights come to mind, Jim? And what's also things or goals that you haven't accomplished yet that you want to in your career? Yeah. Um, I think when I first started getting to play on this higher level, um, there were some neat things I got to kind of check off. Um, you know, uh, the first time playing The Tonight Show. Uh, was was huge for me playing the Letterman show growing up and watching those shows that was that was huge um, playing the Grammys um, you know touring and playing Madison Square Garden I mean stuff like that um, you know was just hugely iconic stuff that I always wanted to be able to do um, 
getting to you know to play on some some hit records mm-hmm. um, has been you know something that has been neat. This uh, this new this new single with Rascal Flatts, yeah. um, you know that that that's been uh, that's been really huge. Um, as far as like things that I look at towards the future, um, I mean I I love teaching, and, and so. Um, the opportunity to continue to, to teach. The great thing about that is, um, is I feel like I'm going to be able to do that for years and years. And it's something I have a little bit more control over Mm. and, you know, say being able to play, you know, with a group on the highest level. Um, you know, I, I don't know if or when that, when it'll end, but um, I never like take any of it for granted. So I go out there and play every show like it could be my last, because mm-hmm. um, you know I've been playing on this level now for 20 years and it's right. been phenomenal. Right. Um, I, I think certainly putting out my my books has been um, it's something I never. I mean, I, I never you know thought when I was a kid I was going to be writing books. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, this book here has certainly been, you know, a huge career accomplishment. It's amazing. And I think that it's, it's helping me um, bring my career to a different level in terms of what I can do as an educator on a, uh, on a global level. I mean, uh, you and I are both friends with uh, Dom Fonularo, yeah. uh, who is uh, really, you know, I mean, he has been absolutely the global ambassador of drumming for, you know, 25 years at least, you know, uh, and it's phenomenal. And so, uh, getting to do like, I went and did an event with him over in Switzerland and, uh, you know, I, I hang with that guy as much as possible because, um, because he does something that I, I, I would really aspire to do and few will get the opportunity to do. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just trying to expand what I do as an educator uh, on, on a global level because I, I just like being a positive uh, influence in as many young musicians' lives. And so I, I try to spend a lot of time doing that. And that's why, you know, 4 o'clock today I'll be, uh, I'll be right back in here. Teaching, uh, teaching kids. Right. And that, that with Dom was for the sessions.org. Is that correct, Jim? Um, well, I did a thing at Indiana University for the sessions. Yes. And um, Dom and I did something for Percussion Creative, which is a group in Germany, but we were doing a, uh, a Swiss chapter uh, of, of Percussion Creative over there. Uh, we did a, a day of percussion type thing, so it was me and Dom and uh, and Todd Zuckerman. Oh, great! Yeah, another great drummer. Uh, so yeah, it was a, it was great, and then there was some um, some European artists there as well. But it was uh, it was it was really a fantastic opportunity, and of course, you know, the best part about it is just you know hanging with with, with Todd and, and Dom and, and just you know yeah, hanging with the guys. It was the same when I did the. Uh, the sessions. They invited me to do uh, something on the sessions this year, and I, uh, I hope to do more of that because I think that again holds some of the same um, things dear that I do, which is just trying to help 
uh, young players and player and players that want to get to a new level yes. find their way there. Uh, last two questions, Jim, because I want to also bring a little bit back from our earlier uh, discussion. In addition to Peter Chris, who we both love, who three or four sort of main drummers that really influenced you to play? Yeah, I think some drummers that continued and continue to influence me um, both to play and to continue to get better. Uh, I think after Peter Chris, I, I made that logical step for, for guys that are about our age. And, and I went into the to, to, to listening to Neil Peart. And of course, Neil Peart um, was super inspiring to me. And um, I learned a lot uh, from from him. Uh, I, I started to really get into you know guys like Chad Smith. Yeah, amazing. Uh, and, and and Will Calhoun, right? Yes. Um, both of which you know I've had the pleasure of, of getting to to meet and hang with. Um, but you know guys like that like really um, showed me like a, a, a new generation of drummers that that uh, I really um, was inspired by. Uh, some some off the you know Trelock Gertu is is someone that really. Um, inspires me a lot his playing uh, there's a a record that he did with john mclaughlin called uh live at uh royal festival hall in london mm. and uh, it's phenomenal playing because he's uh he's an indian born guy that grew up in in europe and uh plays tabla and drum set simultaneously and uh so he plays at that point he was playing with no bass drum wow. and so some of the things that he was doing continue to uh, inspire me to look at the drums just a little bit differently. Mm. And of course, uh, having some of the, the Indian uh, like DNA in his playing from the tabla, yeah. uh, his sense of timing and counting yeah. is just uh, phenomenal and, uh, and inspiring to me. Um, drummers like uh, Manu Cachet uh, from, from France, uh, who Dalam got to hang with at the sessions, uh, in Paris, um, Manu is, um, you know, such a smooth drummer and, you know, listening to his drumming on, um, Peter Gabriel records, uh, was uh, hugely inspiring to me, uh, going back and listening to, uh, John Bonham and realizing that John Bonham was a drummer that could walk into any age and play. He could walk into today's music and he could, he could, uh, you know, record uh on a katie perry record and sound awesome you know and uh you know i mean he was just a a, a drummer who's who's playing uh transcended the time that uh he was in and uh you know i'm constantly inspired by you know um lots of 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 today's drums even guys like contemporaries like my my friend keith carlock who just looks at the drums really differently mark juliana um you know uh Guys that are, are are my peers and and even younger than me, like Mark, but um, that continue to inspire me to get better. And you know, most of all, my my students, my students really inspire me to get better. Um, I mean, I wrote this book, you know, for my students right. and right. for me. And I'm a student of this book now. So 
like there are things in there that I think I play really great. And then there are things that I am still working on. Yeah. And when I get the better, I'll, I'll put them out there and I'll let you, I'll let you hear them. <laughs> well, I think, um, I think it's pretty good. The ghost notes are killing me in here, Jim. You're amazing at the ghost notes in some of these things. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm still trying well, to get there. So the one thing that I did in that book, um, very well, um, and you know, there's with certain books, people gravitate towards certain pages, you know, syncopation, you got certain pages, people gravitate towards in that book, people have really gravitated towards that, those ghost note pages, because I do a really good job of breaking down. I think people are really scared of ghost notes and rightfully so. And so what I did was I break down all of the ghost notes that I use in a 16th note environment yes. into six different elements. And if you can play those six elements, then you can learn to play um, almost all of the ghost note stuff you would ever want to play. And um, it, it's a really great place to start. And uh, I can actually give you a little quick demo of some of that if you'd like. would love it. Absolutely. Please. Yeah. So this is actually the kit that I um, played on the New Rascal Flats record. It, it has moved into this place. The other kit that's going to the museum has moved out. Amazing. And uh, so this kit is here uh, right now. I actually still get the same heads I used on the session. That's great. So, um, talking about ghost notes. <laughs> down to six elements. The first one is the single tap. So I'm going... Purdy shuffle. Yes. Uh, or, or as we would know it as the Rosanna shuffle. Yeah. So um, on that, it requires you to be able to play an accent followed by an interview. In the 16th note round, what I'm doing is I'm going one, two, The fourth element is what I call the middle two, and that is of the four 16th notes, mm. I'm playing the middle two. So that's. Of course, you start adding these things together. Uh, tell the story of what you're trying to play with the band. 
The other two uh, elements that I use are hi-hat elements, which is... is fantastic Jim that's really great man that's I can just study that right there right? <laughs> from the book <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, I actually do a breakdown I've got a video on moderndrummer.com and also on on my YouTube page that breaks down those uh, you know I'm not trying to hoard information no. I'm not even trying to sell information it's like I'm just trying to collect it put it all in one place. This is one great place that you can find a lot of information. But um, for me, there's a continuing resource uh, on my YouTube page. Uh, half, half of the tunes, and there's 124 tunes uh, with, with this book. Half of the tunes are already on YouTube with me or somebody else in the world doing a great job playing that tune. I play Ludwig drums, uh, I play Sabian cymbals, uh, Remo drum heads, um, I, uh, I play Gibraltar hardware because I, I love the rack systems, I use those uh, uh, on, on the road. Um, I uh, play uh, Vader sticks, uh, LP percussion, and uh, I play uh, Roland uh, Roland Electronics. Yes. Um, I, I play all the instruments that I've always played that I love, and it's great to have uh, it's great to have relationships with these companies. But the, the most important thing about endorsements is to work on your craft, and then um, the endorsement stuff will kind of happen uh, a little bit more organically when it's time right. in your career. And then, then at that time, I just basically approached the companies that I, I really enjoyed their products. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I still, you know, play those products. Right. Right. But music first, not going for the endorsements first. Yeah, absolutely. For your students or drummers, any musicians watching this in the future, what's that top one or two things that you would, what advice would you give them to be able to have some of the success that you've been able to have? Well, I think I mentioned one of the things earlier, um, to be patient, um, to try to be a kind individual, um, you know, in my travels, especially getting to meet some of my idols, uh, I've had some really great experiences and I've had some super awful experiences. Um, and it just made me realize that we all have two choices. We have a choice to be nice and patient with people, um, and, or we have the choice to be um, short and curt with people where. Um, you know, 
when you're going along in your day, that's just another day for you. For for the person that that's getting to meet you, that's a big deal. They're getting to meet their idol. Right. And you're going to shape what they think about you from that meeting for the rest of their life, you know. And so uh, I look at, you know, people like uh, like Dom Famuaro yeah. uh, is, is a great example. Greg Bissonette yes. is another great example of, of, of somebody who's a great musician and a great person. Yeah. And uh, both of those people have gone a long way in their particular and very di- different from each other uh, careers yeah. um, by being great at what they do and um, and being a great person. Um, and I think that that's probably one of the most important things. The other thing is, is, is respect the music, study the music, no matter what kind of music it is. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we can make about any kind of music is to underestimate it, Mm. underestimate the music, then you don't respect it. And if you don't respect it, then how can you really learn its nuances? And, um, I, I see that a lot with jazz players that assume that because they are very versed at the complexities of jazz, that they understand the simplicities of pop or country or something like that. And I assure you that they do not. Um, and it, it's because that they've underestimated it that they will never really truly be great at it. Um, so respect all musics. Find you know, find some part of that musical genre that you enjoy and use that as an anchor to grab onto it and go, okay. And, and, and that's what I tried to do in the book was I tried to, to paint uh, different styles of music in a, um, in a positive light so that, you know, people could go, you know what, I get, I get this country thing. This is really cool. I get this um, bluegrass thing, or I get this metal thing, and, and I see the validity there. Um, and once you see the validity, then you're expanding your musical vocabulary. Um, and, and when you when you understand more musical genres, it's going to make you um, better at each individual genre because you can kind of bring elements into the ones that you're playing. But also, if you increase the amount of musical styles that you're uh, that you feel comfortable playing then you're increasing your ability to play music for a living you know that for me is has been my goal I mean I don't consider my success on you know awards or uh, you know being on the cover of modern drummer or you know any of those kinds of things those are like byproducts of the fact that I love playing music for a living and and I consider my success that I can play music for a living uh, and I don't have to do anything else and all I do is play music, teach music, write music, write about music and I can support my family doing that and so I, I never put a monetary value on a success. It's always on the fact that I love what I'm doing and I'm able to, you know, live my life, support my family doing that. And that's, you know, that's all I wish for everybody out there uh, listening today. Right. Great stuff. Jim Riley, thank you so much for all your music and your music and drum teaching. Thanks so much for being on Musicians on the Record. Thank you for having me.